verse 8. So we are back in 1 Kings chapter 17. And we will begin today in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make yourself something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and, her, and, she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Thank you. The smelting of precious metals like gold was a time-consuming process in the ancient world. The first step was mining. It involved taking a pickaxe, going into rock, and cutting out stone that had to be carried back to the shop in a, a cart to the, to the smelter shop. At the smelter shop, more refining would take place, this time not with a pickaxe, but with a little chisels and small hammers and files. And these were used to remove more and more rock from the gold. But even the best refiner couldn't remove all the impurities with pickaxes and chisels and files. And so what was left over was thrown into a furnace. And once this furnace reached the right temperature, once it got hot enough and the pressure was intense enough, 
the gold would melt and the refiner could simply spoon off the impurities, the slag, with a spoon and throw it away. And when this process was finally over, when all the mining and chiseling and burning and melting was done, the refiner had the most precious metal in all the world, pure gold. Now, some of you may be wondering, why on earth would I begin this sermon this way? Well, well here's why. There's a word in Hebrew for smelting shop. Can you guess what that word is? It's Zarephath. That's precisely where the Lord is about to send Elijah. You see, Elijah has really big, important work to do in chapters 18 and 19. A turning point in the Old Testament is just about to show up on the horizon. But Elijah doesn't know that yet. And Elijah's not prepared for that yet. And so the Lord is going to send him to, to Zarephath, to the refiner's fire, to purify him and prepare him for the work that's to come. But the Lord is doing more than working in the life of a prophet. He's about to begin working in the life of an unnamed widow and her unnamed son. He's drawing them to himself and teaching them and us that the Lord is worth loving and trusting even in the most difficult and painful and hopeless situations you can find yourself in. And so he takes them to the smelting shop and refines them with his fire. Perhaps the Lord's been doing that with you. Perhaps he sent you to Zarephath and put you in a refining fire of sorts to purify your faith, which the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter says is even more precious than gold. Perhaps he's doing that now. He's put you in a hard place. His providence has, has visited you with difficult things. Perhaps that's true of you. Perhaps he's doing that to teach you that Christ really is worth loving and trusting, even when things seem helpless and hopeless. I pray that the Lord would, would teach me that lesson today. I pray that he would teach you that as well as we look at this remarkable chapter. So let's pray and ask the Spirit's help and blessing. Oh, Spirit, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this marvelous moment in redemptive history, which focuses on three people and you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to see that you are worth loving and trusting, that Christ is worth loving and trusting, even in difficult circumstances. And we pray, O oh Lord, that, that you would use the difficult circumstances in our lives, the difficult providences that you bring to us, to purify our faith, which is more precious than gold. We pray, O oh Lord, that, that you would help us to understand something of this process as we see it work itself out in the life, in the lives of Elijah and the widow and her son. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted as we do so. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we work through this chapter, I want to draw your attention to a few things, and that is the first of those is the new work. So look with me at verses 7 to 10. Now, when we last left Elijah, he was in the wilderness by the brook Kareth. Now, I'm pretty sure that's not where he thought he'd be. Perhaps that's not where he hoped to be, but, but that's where he was. But life in the wilderness turned out to be not all that bad. Ravens, though detestable by Levitical standards, proved to be great waiters. They brought him food and drink twice a day. It wasn't the Ritz-Carlton, but all things being considered, it wasn't all that bad. 
especially in the midst of a crippling famine. But then the brook dried up. Now that's a really interesting phrase. Then the brook dried up. This chapter is all about showing us God's power and glory and sovereignty and His trustworthiness. And so when we see that the brook dried up, we're not meant to think, oops, God didn't see that coming. God is involved in moving Elijah out of the wilderness and to a new place. See, the issue with the brook is not God's power, it's God's will. God has new work for him to do. He's going to send him to a new place. He's going to meet a new provider. And the new place is really, really interesting. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. It's a sermon there. Think about this for a minute. Zarephath. It's a hundred miles away. Would the ravens still be able to find him? Would there be water? Would there be food? That's the smallest of his troubles. See, Zarephath isn't in Israel. It's outside of the promised land. It's in Sidon. Now, the original readers, the original audience of this book would have known that. Uh, this is not here to, to teach us where Zarephath was. It's to remind us of something. It's here for, for emphasis See, Elijah's being sent out of the promised land to the Sidonians who were ruled by a king named Ethbaal. Ethbaal's a really interesting name. It literally means, I'm with Baal. The Lord is sending Elijah to the kingdom of a man whose name means, I'm with Baal. He's sending him into the heart of Baal-worshipping territory. By the way, Ethbaal is the father of Jezebel who's the wife of the king Elijah confronted, who's the wife of the king who wants Elijah dead. The Lord is not just sending him out of the promised land to a hostile toward territory into the heart of Baal worshiping country. He's sending him to a place that's under active judgment. See, this drought wasn't just an Israel thing. It was an all-over thing. And he's going to a place in Sidon that's under God's active judgment, a place where Elijah would likely be blamed for the drought itself. And what's remarkable about this as well is not just that it's far away, not just that it's hostile territory, not just that people there want him dead, but the Lord tells him to dwell there. Not visit, not stop, not weekend, not vacation, but dwell there. He will dwell there for years in enemy territory, in a hostile place where people want him dead. And it's almost comical because the Lord says, you know, I know you're probably concerned about Zarephath. Don't worry, I've got a provider there for you. Look at the end of verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. A widow. A widow. Right? If you know anything about widows in the Bible, they are the most helpless, the most vulnerable, the most powerless people in the ancient world. They are the most vulnerable members of the community. Think about Ruth and Naomi. You remember how Ruth and Naomi, what they had to do when they got back from Moab and Bethlehem? They, they had to go pick scraps. Out of, actually, Ruth was the only one to pick scraps, pick scraps out of the field to, to feed themselves, to pick leftover grain so they wouldn't starve to death. That's why the, the Old Testament and the New Testament commands God's people, take care of the fatherless and the widow. So, so put all this together. God is saying, Elijah, I want you to go into enemy territory where they're looking for you, where they want you dead, where Baal is king, or at least believed to be king, and I will protect you and provide for you there through the poorest, most vulnerable, most powerless person in that community. That's God's word to Elijah. 
Sometimes the Lord does that, doesn't he? Sometimes he sends you to a hard place. Sometimes he gives you a hard task. Sometimes he asks you to, to trust him to provide for you, even through really unusual or unexpected means. This isn't new to, to 1 Kings 17. He did that with Abraham and with Joseph and with Moses and with David and with Daniel and with Christ and with his apostles. He might be doing that with you. Maybe at UMC or at your job or in your neighborhood or, or in your family, the Lord has created circumstances that are pressurizing that are meant to, to refine you, to teach you that Christ really can be trusted and relied upon and depended upon every single day in and every single circumstance. Sometimes the refining process that works that way. He puts you in a hard place, a pressurizing place to purify your faith. I have no idea what Elijah thought about this command. We're not given any information about his internal dialogue. What we are told, though, is what he did. Look at verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. No complaining. No questioning. Just trust and obedience. That's a model response to a hard command. Note the new work. Secondly, note the new promise. When Elijah comes to Zarephath, he arrives at the city gate and he spies a, a widow gathering sticks. Now, Elijah perceives that this is the, the widow God has for him. And so he calls her to make a request. Now, now stop right there. Elijah is calling a widow to, to make a request of her. One who traditionally would have no power, money, resources in the midst of a drought. He calls a widow and makes a request of her at the city gate. Now, now, the city gate in the ancient world is a really important place. It's like the city hall, the courthouse, and the market all rolled into one. There would be wealthy people there if there were wealthy people there. Right? If there's anybody wealthy in Zarephath, they would probably be at the city gates because that's where people with money and influence hung out. And so here we have Elijah coming to a city gate where there's probably people with means and wealth and resources, and here's a woman gathering sticks to make a last meal, and Elijah goes to her and makes a request. And he asks her, first of all, give me a drink of water. Now, now under normal circumstances, this request might not raise eyebrows, but this is a drought. It's hard to find water anywhere. When we move next chapter over, Ahab's about to kill his horses. Think about this. He's about to liquidate his tanks. Because they're about to, they're not to have resources to, to feed them. But he doesn't just ask her for water. After she says, okay, I'll get you a little water. As she's going, Elijah says, while you're at it, while you're going to bring me water, get me a morsel of bread. It's a shocking request. It's an impossible request. So the woman informs him of her situation. She says, Elijah, I've got only enough flour and oil to make one last meal for me and my son. After we eat it, it's all gone. And we will starve and die. You're asking for everything I have left. It's a sad and tragic and seemingly, seemingly hopeless situation. But Elijah says to her, don't fear. Trust the Lord 
and believe his promise. What would she do? Baal has let this woman down over and over and over again. Baal didn't protect her husband from death. Remember, she's a widow. Her husband has died. Baal can't provide for herself and and for her son. He can't even do the one job he's supposed to do, right? Baal has one big God job, and that is to, to send rain. But he can't do that. He's unable to do that. Baal is worthless and useless, and he has let this woman down over and over again. Is the Lord different? Can he be trusted Can he bring help? Can he bring deliverance? See what Elijah's asking? He's not really just asking for food and water. He's asking for faith. He's asking her to to believe the Lord, believe his word, and trust his promise. Perhaps the Lord's asking us the same thing. Perhaps he's asking us today. We find ourselves in in a refining fire sort of place, not to fear, but to believe his word and trust his promise. If you already love and trust the Lord, he's asking you to do that again. He asks you to do that every day, again and again and again. And if you've never done that, if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you've never believed his word and trusted his promise, he's inviting you to do that today. Sometimes the Lord puts us in the refiner's fire to teach us how to do that very thing. Maybe for the first time. Note the new promise. Thirdly, note the the new provision. The woman responded to God's promise with faith. Ahab didn't. Not in the previous portion we looked at. Ahab didn't. But she did. Look at verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. With the very last bits of flour and oil. With all that she had, she makes One last meal for Elijah and for herself and for her son. And they ate. And that evening she put the empty jar of flour and the empty jug of oil back into the cupboard and closed it. And the next morning she woke up. And she opened the cupboard. And what did she find? The jar and the jug were no longer empty. We aren't told how much was there each morning, only that it never ran dry, not as long as the drought lasted. I suspect, and many commentators suspect, that that there was just enough flour and oil in those jugs for one day more. That's how the Lord provided for His people in the Exodus. He didn't give them a a smorgasbord every single day for them to, to collect and gather and store. No, He gave them just enough for that day. That seems to be the way the Lord provided for Elijah in the wilderness. That seems to be the way He's providing for the widow and her son and Elijah here. Friends, that's that's how the Lord teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. I think there was enough for each day. So each day Elijah and the woman and her son put empty jugs in the cupboard. And each morning they opened it to find that the Lord had met their needs. You see what He's teaching them in Zarephath in this This refining fire is teaching them to abandon self-sufficiency and to learn to depend wholly and solely on Him. That's an important part of the refining process. It's a hard part of the refining process too. The Lord wants each of His people to renew their faith, renew your faith and your faith each and every day.
and believe His promises anew each and every day. He wants you to to abandon self-sufficiency each and every day. Believe His Word and trust His promise each and every day. You know, this is a, a powerful scene. But Jesus comes at it from another angle in Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes to His own hometown of Nazareth and preached in a local synagogue. But the people there did not respond to Him like the widow. They didn't respond with faith and trust and love. They responded with unbelief and skepticism. And so Jesus reminds them as they scoff at His word of this widow. He says this, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his, own in his own hometown. You all know that part. But remember the next part. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. We know that first part. It's good to know that. But what comes after that is good to know as well. That's a serious and stinging rebuke. The Lord reminded His hearers that in the days of Elijah, in the days we're reading about, there were other starving widows in the world. There were other starving widows in the promised land. But the Lord didn't send Elijah to them. He sent him to this woman, this widow, this Gentile widow, this Gentile widow living outside of the promised land and not to his people Israel. And why is that? Because they weren't listening to his word. They weren't loving and trusting him. They weren't responding to his word rightly. So he sent his saving word and his supernatural provision elsewhere to people who would respond with faith and repentance. You see the same thing in the book of Acts. You know Paul's MO, right? He goes to a new place. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches there. And he's usually opposed. Usually rejected. And so what does he do? But since you've decided you're unworthy of the gospel, I'll go take it to the Gentiles and they will believe. And they did believe. See, when God's people don't respond to His word with faith and repentance, He sends it elsewhere. Where is Christianity doing great right now in the world? Where is it doing terrible? That's worth thinking about. It's not doing great in the West. It's doing great in the East. Here in the West, we've had access to God's Word for centuries. But by and large, we haven't responded well. So the Lord seems to be sending it elsewhere. And when you think about where Christianity is doing well in the West, where is it not doing well? By and large, it's not doing well in the South. In the Bible Belt. Why many churches in our communities are closing their doors forever. You see, the Lord's Word demands a response. It demanded a response in the garden. It did so in the days of Noah. It did so during the age of the patriarchs. It did so in the promised land. It did so during our Lord's first advent. In Bethlehem, in Nazareth. So in the book of Acts, it does so now. When God's word is rejected, it's sent elsewhere. But where it's embraced, it brings life and salvation. It's the fourth thing I want to draw your attention to. In many respects, I'd love to stop there. But the story doesn't end there. Not for this woman, not for her son, and not for Elijah. Note the new tragedy. It's actually not a new tragedy, it's an old tragedy. It's death. 
After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. Now, now wait a minute. This doesn't seem right. The Lord has singled this woman out for special mercy, right? When Elijah could have been sent anywhere, he sent him to her. The Lord has singled her out for for special mercy, for saving mercy, for special provision. How could her son get sick, and presumably really sick? Well, I imagine as the sickness kind of began and progressed, I imagine the widow was, was fairly upbeat. And and why wouldn't she be? I mean, she loved and trusted the Lord. She was the recipient of a a miraculous provision every single day. And a prophet lived under her very roof. I mean, surely, if anyone would be exempt from tragedy, it should be her. Surely, if anyone would be protected from such things, it would be her. But despite her faith and despite her prayers... The sickness grew worse and worse. Then it finally claimed her son's life. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. He didn't pass out. He didn't slip into a coma. The unthinkable happened. He died. Think about this. Think about what we're looking at here. Why did this happen? How does this happen? How could it happen? It doesn't seem right. God loves this woman. God loves her son. God has drawn them to himself, miraculously provided for them. But now a sickness, a a sickness God could have prevented or cured, takes another loved one from her. Why? Welcome to the problem of pain. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you know it by experience. Some of you know this part of the oven, this part of the furnace. For many of us, tragedy, suffering, and loss are the hottest and and hardest part of the refining process. It, It certainly was for the widow. Look at how she responds. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. You can almost feel this woman's anger and frustration and confusion and devastation. It seems to her that the Lord has only raised her up to what? To knock her down. It seems like the Lord has sent Elijah not to rescue her from starvation or from her sin, but to judge her for her sin. Is that what's happened? She was probably taught from a young age that that's how Baal works. Good things always happen to good people. And bad things only happen to to bad people. And she probably assumes, or maybe she assumes, that that the Lord works this way too. That's how Job's friends thought. Go back to the book of Job. The faithful are always happy. The wicked only suffer. Job is suffering, therefore he he must be wicked. Even our Lord's apostles thought this way for a time. Do you remember the question they asked in John 9 when they saw the man who was born blind? Remember the question they asked? Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember what Jesus said to them? 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, that's where the woman is. She doesn't know it yet. And maybe that's where you are. You don't know that as well. Friends, hear me. Suffering. The gut-wrenching kind. The heartbreaking kind. The life-shattering kind of suffering is not always the result of sin. Never believe that for a moment. Who are the greatest sufferers in the Bible? Job and Jesus. You could argue that they are also the most righteous and faithful men in the Bible. Certainly in the case of Jesus. Some suffering is caused by sin, but not all suffering. And this woman's son did not die because of his sin. And he did not die because of her sin. See, the Lord is at work, but he's not at work in judgment. She just doesn't know that yet. She hasn't made it to the end of the chapter. And in the midst of great suffering and sadness, it's easy to jump to the wrong conclusion. This isn't just about the problem of pain. This is about the the holy instrument of suffering. There are things that you learn in this part of the furnace that you learn nowhere else. So Francis Anderson in his commentary on Job calls calls suffering this holy instrument, and I like it. It's not a pleasant instrument. It's not a massager, right? It's a painful one. But nothing removes the world from our heart like suffering and death. You can't reason with them. You can't argue with them. You can't barter with them. All you can do is trust in the Lord. And as you do that more fully and more fully, your faith is more refined. Before the Thanksgiving break, I teach the Pilgrim's Progress to 7th graders every year. Uh, and I just, we just made it through the river. And I'm reminded here of something that, that Hopeful says to Christian as he struggles through the river of death. If you'll remember, or sorry if I just spoiled this for you, but Christian does die in the Pilgrim's Progress. He goes through the river, and at the end of the river, or in the river, Christian struggles. He wrestles, he hurts, he loses hope, but Hopeful being Hopeful lifts him up and encourages him. And he reminds him of this. He said, these troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, whether you call to mind that which heretofore you have received of His goodness. And I love this last part. It's something Bunyan said in jail in his autobiography, and learn to live upon Him in your distress. That's what suffering teaches, like nothing else. It's a holy instrument. It's a painful instrument. It's a useful instrument, because it rips the slag of the world from our heart. Thankfully, we're not done with the woman and her son. There is a new tragedy. We also come to a new miracle, an unprecedented miracle. I love how Elijah responds to the widow's tears. Very helpful, I think. He doesn't rebuke her. Doesn't try to correct her theologically. He doesn't offer superficial platitudes. It all works out in the end. He does something really unusual. Actually, he does a series of things that are really unusual. First, he he carries the dead child up to his upper chamber where he lodged and places the dead child in his own bed. Now, why is he doing it? He's not doing it to perform CPR. He doesn't have a defib machine tucked away under the bed. 
He's not trying to resuscitate him. He carries the boy upstairs, lays him out on his own bed to pray. And does he ever pray? Look at what he says. And he cried to the Lord. Not whispered. He'll whisper in the next chapter. His prayer on Mount Carmel is a whisper. His prayer in the upper room is a shout. Oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Do you see what Elijah's praying? You see what he's saying? I, I, I love this part of the Bible because it's not whitewashed. Elijah's saying to the Lord, what have you done? Why have you brought calamity on this widow? Why have you killed her son? This doesn't make sense. None of you have ever prayed that way, right? Of course you have. Of course I have. There have been moments in my life, there have been moments in your life, or there will be moments in your life, perhaps moments in your life recently, when you were utterly confused by the Lord, and you are perplexed, and you are angry, and you are sad, and you are all these things, and you, you at least thought to yourself, Lord, if I had had my finger on the trigger, and I could call the shots, I would have made a different decision. You've thought that way, if you haven't said it. We all have. That's where Elijah is here and now. And who says the Bible isn't honest? Who says it's, it's whitewashing? It's raw in its honesty here. So he prays this, this, this gut-wrenching prayer, and then he does something even more perplexing. He has the child in the bed, and he stretches out on top of him. Not once, not twice, but, but three times. Now, now, why does he do this? What does this mean? Now, we aren't told. We don't know with exactitude. But, but what we do know is that God's people in the Old Testament aren't supposed to touch dead bodies. Not once, not twice, not three times. We're told in Numbers 19, for example, that whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And unclean's a really powerful idea in the Pentateuch. It's to be cut off. Cut off from the tabernacle. Cut off from worship. Cut off from prayer. Cut off from God's people. Cut off from God Himself. For a whole week, until you're purified. For a whole week, you're, you're unclean, you're cut off. And yet, Elijah puts this dead boy in his bed where he sleeps, stretches out over him three times. Why? I think it's because he wants to identify with the dead boy. You know, prophets have to do weird things sometimes. My brother Hal can, can tell you about that from the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is often asked to do strange things, like lay on one side for a really long amount of time, and then lay on another side for a really long part of time, or, or build a model and destroy it, or do other gross sort of things. This happens all the time in the prophets. Well, he's doing an enacted parable here. What Elijah wants to do here is identify with this boy and with his death as much as possible, even if it makes him unclean in so doing. And as he do, does this, he, he prays again, Oh Lord my God, let this child's life come to him again. As Elijah identifies with the dead boy, lays on top of him, covers him with his own body and with his own prayers, he intercedes for him and asks the Lord to give him life. It's stunning. It's moving. It's almost impossible. This has never been done. 
You understand that, right? This has never happened before in the Bible. Enoch got saved from death. He got snatched away before death could grab him. But up to this point in redemptive history, no one who has ever been caught by death has ever come back. Not Adam, not Abel, not Noah, not Abraham, not any of the great heroes of faith. They have been caught by death and never brought back. So why would the Lord raise him? I mean, why not Moses? Why would the Lord take a Gentile boy living outside the promised land, in the heart of Baal country, we don't even know his name, and make him the first recipient of resurrection ever? It seems like a, a hopeless situation. Elijah covers him with his body, covers him with his prayers. And actually, the widow is not in a bad spot. Here she has an intercessor who covers him with his body, even though it makes him unclean. An intercessor who covers him with his prayers for deliverance from death and new life. See, with an intercessor like this, maybe there's hope for him. Perhaps you need reminding that you have an intercessor even better than this. Who covers you with love and blood and righteousness and effectual prayers. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The refining process teaches you who to trust as much as anything. And who should you trust? Well, your faithful high priest and intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what would the Lord do? I love the simplicity of what follows. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Interesting, he didn't say the words of Elijah, he said the voice. He listens to the, the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. Here we find in 1 Kings 17, the first resurrection in the pages of Scripture. There will be other ones. There will be bigger ones. I believe you'll talk about that in Mark's Gospel in the coming weeks. But this is the first. And this resurrection teaches us a lot of things. First of all, it is proof that the Lord is the God who lives. That's what Elijah's name means, right? Uh, his name means the Lord, the God of Israel lives. At the Lord's command, there's no rain. And Baal can do nothing about it. At the Lord's command... Ravens provide food and water for His people, even in the wilderness. And in, at the Lord's command, the Lord can snatch His people back from death. Idols are worthless and powerless and useless. Baal had to submit to death, but death has to submit to the Lord. Secondly, it's a rebuke. Look at how the chapter ends. And think about how it begins. After this, the woman says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. An unnamed Gentile widow outside the promised land, that's her confession of faith. Compare and contrast that with Ahab, the king of God's people, who doesn't know the one true and living God. What a word of warning. Israel sent God's word and God's prophet and God's provision away because they refused to abandon their idols. So the Lord has gone to the highways and byways, to Gentiles and foreigners, and they have found life and salvation in Him. It's a reminder, isn't it, 
of the end of the refining process. And what is the end of the refining process? When do we become pure gold? When do you become pure gold? Well, after death and when you are raised again. When you are sinless creatures in deathless bodies, as J.I. Packer defines glorification. When you are raised again, the refining process is over and you are pure gold. You are exactly then who God created you to be. But here there's also a pointer, isn't there? There's a pointer to Christ, our greater prophet, priest, and king, our, our greater intercessor and mediator who identifies with us and covers us and takes our sin upon himself and makes us clean and gives us new life. Points to his power over death. He takes our uncleanness upon himself. He suffers in our place, identifying with us fully, dies in our stead, so that through him we can be clean and have new life. Elijah is now prepared for what's coming next. He's prepared to confront a king and queen who want him dead. He's also prepared to minister to a people who are spiritually dead because he knows that the Lord is the God who lives. And through Zarephath, through the refining process, his faith is strengthened and he's ready to do the Lord's work. Brothers, I don't know where you are in that process, but I pray that you would submit to it rather than fight against it. And that your faith would be purified for the work the Lord has you to do, looking only to the Lord Jesus, who's worthy of all your love and trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your providential governing of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that you send us to places like Zarephath. You put us in, in difficult places, in difficult circumstances, not because you don't love us, but because you do. And because you want our faith pure and our hearts wholly yours. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would deliver us from love of the world, from idols, that you would remove the slag of it from our hearts, and that you would make us wholly yours for your honor and glory. Amen.